Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Starting Over podcast, the podcast that is all about healing your past, learning how to live more vibrantly in the present and to really expand what is possible for you in the future through self-development work, through mindfulness, through spiritual growth. And the expert that we have on a very important topic today, that of relationships, is no one other than Gay Hendricks. Now, if you have not heard of Gay Hendricks, he has been a huge player in this field of self-development, conscious loving, body intelligence, relationships, personal growth for the last 40 plus years. He is the author of 40 books. He has been endorsed by none other than Oprah and has also hosted and trained, hosted seminars and trained thousands and thousands of coaches the world over. So we really do have a relationship expert here who pulls back the curtain on what it actually takes to cultivate happy relationships, particularly happy partnerships. And some of the answers really surprised me. I've got to say, I I heard some things that I had never heard before. So I think this is definitely an episode to tune into. Some of the themes that we talk about are why are relationships so difficult? Why sex, money, and the kids are not actually the real problem. Something else is instead. What are some of the types of reactions that we have that could be harmful in our relationship and what we can do instead? And in the later half of the episode, we focus on finding your personal genius zone. This is from the 41-minute mark, but I would really encourage you to listen to that part because we go deep into why it is so important to work on your relationship with yourself first and why your own creative projects, your own fulfillment at work is so integral to having a thriving personal relationship as well. If you are enjoying this podcast, if you've learned something from this, if you felt inspired by this, I would be super grateful if you would consider pausing and leaving a quick review wherever you are listening to this or otherwise sharing this episode with somebody who you think would be interested. Thank you so much in advance. But with no further ado, here is my conversation with Gay. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Starting Over podcast. I'm very much looking forward to you sharing your expertise and vast, illustrious career with us and all the wisdom I'm sure that you've garnered over how many decades of working in this space of personal development, relationships, conscious loving. I saw my first client in 1968 when I worked at a school for delinquent boys, so um, I don't have my calculator at hand, but what is uh, 1968 from 2023? Probably more than 50 years anyway. It's it's quite a time. And you have spent many of those decades with your wife, Katie, as well. Yes, we just uh, celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago. What a feat. What a rare feat these days as well. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Well, where I do want to go is in relation to relationships. And whilst prepping for this interview, I thought I'm going to look up what is the most commonly Googled question in regards to relationships these days. Mm. And it was, why are relationships so hard? Well, why I do know you that think, re- yeah, why are relationships so hard? Well, I can tell you from firsthand that one of the big problems f- people struggle with in relationship without even knowing they're struggling with it is being afraid, fear, and not just fear of the other person, but it's fear of being honest with the other person or fear of letting go of being defensive for a moment and being real. You know, those kinds of things are scary to people because we haven't had any training with them. And I, I'll give you a great example of how scary they are. I once got a panic-stricken call from a man who was around 50 at the time who was going through a panic attack um, because... I had asked him to speak to his partner, his lover of some years, 
about something. I wanted him to be honest with her about something. And he had put off telling her something that he was frightened to tell her. And so I gave him the assignment of telling her, you know, sit down. You've got to work up the courage to do this because, see, if you're not telling the truth in a relationship, if you're not, and this is for all of us, not just him, any of us, if we're not being honest in the relationship, we have no right to expect the other person to be real with us. I don't know if you noticed this, but the uh, Merriam-Webster, I saw the other day in the news that the word of the year is authentic, authenticity. Mm. Isn't that amazing that so many people are looking up that word to find out how to be authentic? But in relationships, you absolutely have to be face-to-face, open-hearted, honest with each other. Otherwise, you're not in a relationship. A relationship is between two equals. Look it up. It's not between a master and a slave or two combatants in a zone, a military zone or anything like that. It's between two equals. Anything else is, here we call it, an entanglement. If you're entangled with the other person, if you're not being honest or you're not listening to the truth, or particularly if you're not taking full responsibility for what's going on in the relationship. See, one of the biggest problems in relationship is people start perceiving that they're victims and then coming from that victim position, they accuse the other person of whatever it is, but the other person doesn't stand still and say, oh yeah, that's right, you are my victim. The other person runs for the victim position too. And um, in our trainings, we say that all arguments between couples are a race to occupy the victim position. And once you're in that, though, the other person looks like the enemy. And so one of the big reasons why relationship is so hard is because we're not accustomed to telling the truth to each other, which is absolutely required in a relationship. And almost nobody is is skilled at how to take responsibility instead of blaming another person. You know, it's once you learn, it's not that hard. It's like you blame the other person and then you say, oh, hmm, how did I create this situation? It's not blaming yourself. It's wondering. Hmm. So both of those take a lot of practice, though. And I mean, it took Katie and me years couple of years anyway, just to get good at that, how to take responsibility for something when we're in the middle of blaming the other person. So is this like, say, people listening who are in a relationship right now, or even perhaps reflecting on a previous one, when they get caught in that mode of, you did that, I'm not happy because you didn't take the trash out when you said you were going to. Mm-hmm. Or, and is that, what you're, is that what you mean by saying that you immediately adopt the victim mode? Like, I'm the one who's being persecuted yes. here or I yes, am experiencing exactly. the challenge and I need to get you to change your behavior so that it's go all okay with me. <laughs> yes. If it weren't for you, I'd be a lot happier. However, what do we do when they say, but you did say you were going to take the trash out and you didn't do it. So then <laughs> how does that work when you say that I, in that instance, would be the one who has to take responsibility? Yes. Well, Listen up out there, troops, because this is important wisdom based on having worked with, I think, about 4,500 couples now. When people get scared, they retreat into that victim position. And from that victim position, the other person looks like they're doing it to you. However, if it's happened three or more times, I'll tell you why that is in a minute. If it's happened three or more times, it's not about what you think it is. It's not about the fact that he actually left his socks on the floor. If you've said to your partner three or more times, pick up your socks and it hasn't worked, then you have to look at, hmm, what is this theme? Why would I put myself in a position where I'm asking somebody to do something and they don't do it. Hmm, how is this familiar? Because a lot of times these are lifelong patterns that you've seen around you growing up 
and you just fall into those. You think that carping at your partner is going to do some good. But in fact, carping at your partner is the problem, you know, because if you have to carp at your partner, that means you failed a number of times to get something done. So around here at our institute and our trainings, we have a phrase we use called Hendrick's aerobics. And what it is, is imagine stretching out your arm with your finger pointing and saying to the other person, ha, I got gotcha. you, you know. You're the one who's inconveniencing me here. And then imagine bringing your arm back to yourself and saying, hmm, of all the possibilities I could be doing right now, why would I be doing this particular one? Or why would I be carping at my partner for the 114th time? Hmm, what does that say about me? So the moment we can and it's not blame, it's about wonder. It's about genuine wonder about, hmm, why would I be creating this particular drama of all the things I could be doing right now? And so that's something that we need to get good at, making that move back, that friendly move, not a blaming move, not, oh, why am I doing this again? But, hmm, what's this really about? Here's, a, here's another thing, Shannon. Here we say that, Sex problems are never about sex, and money problems are never about money. And the reason we say that is when people come in, they're usually arguing about one of a very small number of things. Sex, kids, chores, money. Those are some of the most the important. Four. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you'd be surprised that more people are arguing about money then they're arguing about sex. But more people are arguing about kids than they are about money. And so, um, and the reason we say it's never what you think it is because let's say, okay, here, here's a great example. I was working with a very, very wealthy couple one time. And these are folks that are, you know, billionaire sort of folks. And you know, live in a $50 million house and that kind of thing. So they're way outside of where you would normally think people fight about money. But guess what? They fought about money a lot. And one of the big things was he just gave her relentless guff about why are you having to buy the $7.99 organic peanut butter when skip and jiffy only cost three dollars you really? know and and also oh, this was the classic one because i actually got the calculator out for this one he was hassling her on you know why do you buy the seven dollar roll of toilet paper when you can get one for a dollar at the uh but in an essence store? in an essence that is you know you say that the problem isn't money because in that instance what is what is it if it isn't money? control Control. Yes. And what is control? Why would a billionaire try to be so concerned with his wife buying the expensive toilet paper? As I pointed out, I got him to get out his calculator and we figured out that he could buy everyone on earth a roll of toilet paper and still have change left over. You know, so it, it's about control. Gosh, could you imagine? I can't even imagine having to have that conversation. What, what a life you've lived as well. Goodness me. <laughs> it's really something because I had the pleasure. Also, I did for many years uh, a lot of corporate consulting where I would, you know, let's say they were having a problem at Motorola that they couldn't, where they, the board wasn't speaking to each other. I would go in and get things hopefully straightened out. And I'll tell you, you go into a boardroom where there's 12 people, all of who got there all of whom got there by having monster egos. Of course. And it's thick in the room. But here's the secret I know that almost nobody else knows. All ego defenses are based on fear. And if you can help the person figuring out what they're afraid of, you've done them a huge favor because then they can deal with it at a level where something could happen. You know, like... Uh, 
uh, a boardroom situation. So I go into the boardroom and there's three old guys sitting there with their arms across their chests and they're just as mad as they can be and it's thick in the room, you know? My job is to get them out of that stuck place as quickly as possible. And the quickest way through is to find out what they're scared about and what they're sad about because they know what they're angry about. They're real convinced about that. But what they don't know is anytime you're angry, you're also scared and sad. And so my way of breaking up the stuck place would be to just dive right in and said, okay, what are you guys really afraid of? Tune in inside. What are you afraid of? How did you know, that go in? How did that go in a boardroom? Because oh yeah, well sometimes they would get into their ego bluster. Oh, I'm never scared. You know, I you know, I fought in World War Z and I'm never scared. You know, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah. I know what malarkey that is. That's just BS. You know, because everybody's wired the same way, and everybody's got fear mechanisms in their belly. Everybody's got sadness mechanisms in their chest and throat. And everybody has anger mechanisms in their jaw and their shoulders where you tighten up when you get angry. But so that's something that I just learned over the years is that, you know, it's like Graham Greene in one of his novels, he asks an elderly priest that's listened to 80,000 confessions or something, you know, after all that confessing, what have you learned about human behaviors or humans? And the, the elderly priest said, I've learned two things. One, people are much more unhappy than they let on. And number two, there is no such thing as a grown-up. Mm. Because even if you think you have a grown-up problem, like, like what to do with the kids, you know, how to discipline the kids, let's say. A lot of people argue about that. Well, that's not really a kid's problem because the kid's problem could be solved rather quickly if both people weren't protecting their egos and hitting at the other person. A lot of people in relationships also get in a very troublesome habit of attacking the being of the other person. You know, instead of, I didn't like it when you left your socks on the floor, they'd go to, what a slob you are. You know, I, your whole family are slobs, you know, and why couldn't any of you learn to pick up your sock? Now you attack the being and even the legacy of the other person. That's difficult then because that's, if you've gotten to that point in the relationship, you've developed an edge of contempt. And, you know, like uh, John uh, Goffman says, he's what, a marital researcher. And up at the University of Oregon, he has something he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse, four patterns that when you start to see them spell doom for the relationship, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and withdrawal, you know, silent, the mm -hmm. silent treatment, but criticism, chronic criticism, uh, something that happens over and over again. Surprisingly, a lot of people like they do these studies where they ask people after they split up, what was the thing that really caused you to get out of the relationship? And a lot of people say, I just couldn't stand the constant criticism anymore. You know, and so it gets to be toxic in a relationship and in the background all the time. Contempt is the biggest horseman of the apocalypse because that means things have gotten so entrenched that you're really always attacking the being of the other person. And so that's when that level of contempt has settled in. The other ones can be worked with, you know, like defensiveness and, and withdrawal. You, those can be trained, but it really takes a, a lot of courage actually to get yourself out of that victim position and begin to talk about it in a way that the problem can be solved. So I guess going back to what you said before about recognizing that it is in our body that we are experiencing our emotions. So you said fear in the stomach, sadness in the chest, anger in our, in our neck and uh, shoulders. Do you encourage people to become, start becoming more aware of 
their physiological responses in those moments where they're getting, let's say, triggered by something that their partner said or a situation or a difficult conversation that they need to have about the money, kids, finances, or one of the other topics you said keep coming up recurrently? Yes. Well, it's important to think of your whole evolving being as a mind-body process because, you know, our minds are very, very strong and important, but unless they're aligned with the emotions you feel, you can't really get anything done in life, you know, if you're at war with your own being all the time. And so um, you have to really open up to your body a lot if you really want to understand yourself, because a lot of the things that are important are beneath below our necks, you know, they're down there in the chest and the throat and the belly. And, and it, it, it's important, like, for example, just to learn how to communicate with your body is important to be able to say, I'm feeling a, a real tightness in my chest right now. You know, that's different than pointing your finger at the other person and saying, you're making me sad right now, or you're, you're threatening me or whatever, you know, stay away from those you statements. Get in the habit of speaking from I, because nobody likes to be attacked with those kind of you statements that a lot of people resort to in their relationships. Mm -hmm. One thing we suggest in our books is to not try to talk about problems while you're doing anything else. You know, so many people, they're in the middle of getting dressed or the middle of their getting something ready, and they're having an argument at the same time. We have never seen people resolve arguments that way while they're multitasking. And so one thing we recommend highly is for people to have two designated times a week where they sit down and talk about things. One we call the heart talk and the other one we call the stuff talk. And we recommend doing it in two different, like write down a little list of stuff, you know, like the upstairs toilet needs fixing. The oven is broken. Um, Kevin needs to be picked up early from soccer on Thursday. You know, the stuff of life, sit down and handle that in a meeting. You'll find the rest of your life goes much more. Same thing with heart talk. If you're upset about something, instead of trying to tell the other person while they're driving to work, that's actually one of the major causes of auto accidents is people getting emotionally triggered while they're driving their car. And or going out right after an argument and getting into their car because a lot of auto accidents happen within an hour of an emotional upset. And so be very wary of trying to solve problems while you're multitasking. Sit down, have a heart talk once a week. In our books, we recommend doing like a, a stuff talk on Tuesday night and a heart talk on Thursday night, but make it time limited. 20 minutes is plenty of time to handle that stuff if you get yourself set up right for it. Mm. I'm hearing the importance of routine in all of this. And it's and it can be very difficult in and amongst the busyness of life to actually carve out that time and prioritize, but it's so important, isn't it? I actually noticed the difference massively after my husband and I, we went to an Imago retreat and decided to start implementing this in our relationship and having those sit down conversations and actually sitting across from each other, holding hands, taking the time to connect to each other and also connect internally to feel more closely what's going on. It, it's just been so, so life-changing in fact. And we've experienced so much more of a a depth and an on, honest, fulfilling love, I think, since doing that? Yes. Well, I think it's really important to think of your relationships as something that needs to be fed and nurtured. The flow of loving connection between the two of you. Quick pause. If you're a regular listener to the show and you have found value in these episodes, I would be immensely grateful if you pledged your support. Reality is podcasting is not a free venture. There are many behind the scenes costs 
But with your support, you'll be able to help me fuel the growth of this podcast and keep bringing you bigger and better guests each and every week. And of course, the signature honesty and real talk, which I'm known for. So if you'd like to say thanks and support the show for less than a cup of coffee per week, you can click the link called Patreon in the show notes. Thanks so much in advance, guys. Back to the episode. If you think about some of the... If you reflect on your relationship with Katie over the years, what do you think has been really instrumental in you both lasting so long? If you had to pick three things, what do you think has made the biggest impact on that? Well, one thing is the commitments we made to each other. A lot of people don't realize that the commitments you make to each other are really the template out of which the relationship is going to be built. So we didn't do the usual kind of wedding vows, you know, like you read in a, a, a magazine or something about, I promise to love, honor, and obey you all the days of your life. So we, yeah, let's get rid of really, obey. <laughs> yeah. uh, modern, modern times, that one is out. No. That's out. So one thing is to commit to things that you have some control over. Like, I commit to speaking honestly to you. I commit to listening to you to the extent that I can summarize what you're saying. I commit to the development of my own creative life so that I don't take it out on you that I'm not expressing my creativity. That's a very common thing in relationships, that one person or the other is cheating themselves about not opening up to their own genius zone, but they're taking it out on the other person because they don't feel spiritually or creatively fulfilled. And so we need to be mindful about the commitments we make to each other. So that's one thing. The second thing is Katie and I literally spent years learning how to communicate things like, I felt angry when you said that, or, ooh, I felt some fear in my belly just then when you talked about going to Europe for three weeks. You know, things that don't ride over them, you know, go ahead and speak to what's going on in the moment, because if you just squish them down all the time, or write them down and talk to them, talk to each other about them when you're not busy doing other things, that's, that can be a real miracle producer in a relationship. Um, so that's two things. The third thing, I want to get back to this creativity. What Katie and I learned is that all of us have, you know, what in the big leap I call a genius zone inside ourselves, where we really need to be nurturing that part of ourselves that does what you love to do and you do things that make a contribution to other people. So we need to be fulfilled on that kind of creative and I would say spiritual level. There's a great um, verse in the Gospel of Thomas, which was one of the apocryphal Gospels that didn't make it into the official Bible, but it has some real juicy stuff in it. And one of the things that's said in it, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. In other words, if you've got something to say, get it out. Don't sit on it for your whole lifetime. Uh, because when we sit on our creativity for too long, it begins to eat away at us. And then you begin to lose the zest for life. And, yes. you know, one of my old mentors from way back, Abraham Maslow, he said, it doesn't matter if you're making a genius soup or writing a genius symphony. They both call forth that same quality of love and caring, even though the soup may be only appreciated by eight people or six people or maybe two people. Both of them have that quality of bringing forth the best of yourself and making a contribution and doing something you love to do. So if we can get busy doing that kind of thing, we don't have as much urge to complain in our relationships. Mm. And we feel so much better in ourselves. You know, I really appreciate the work of Esther Perel. 
And she has a very well-known TED Talk on how to maintain desire in long-term relationships. There are a couple of elements she outlines, but one which I immediately thought of when you said that was about seeing your partner in their element and how that can really contribute to desire and feeling connected. And I think it's because people feel connected even to themselves when they are doing something that they love, that they are lit up, that lights up that fire inside of you and you radiate. And of course, that becomes attractive and probably much easier also to, to feel connected in your partnership as well. Yes. Hmm. Yes, that's really a good point. I was just thinking of a conversation I had with a, a young woman um, whose father was a medical doctor, and she, uh, daught, you know, daughter's going to work day. She went, spent a day with him in his practice and taking part in conversations that if it was okay for the patient to, for her to be there. And her takeaway from that was really interesting. She said, why doesn't he listen to us at home like that? You know, that she had noticed that her father brought a certain type of non-critical listening and non-judgmental presence to the conversations. And she was not used to seeing that when he was at home because he was involved in critic, you know, discipline or criticism or something like that. But he didn't do that generous listening thing that uh, he did in the office. So it was very big news for both of them because then he started doing more of that at home, you know, not trying to be their doctor, but just listening better. Mm. Is this a component of conscious versus unconscious loving? Exactly. Unconscious loving is the flip side. It's holding things inside instead of communicating the truth. It's blaming and shaming rather than opening up and exploring. It's, uh, in fact, uh, we used to have a little um, pin that we put on people after seminars, after they finished a seminar, and it said, conscious loving, consider the alternative, unconscious loving. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so one time we were taking our package of buttons through a uh, airport security, and this lady that looked at our buttons said, wow, that's a great idea. Can I have one of those? And so sure, we pinned one on her, even though she hadn't heard of us or read our book or anything, we, uh, we gave her yeah. one. But I want everybody in the world to be, uh, metaphorically anyway, wearing a conscious loving button where you know that it's better to be honest than to be hidden. It's better to be generous in your listening rather than critical in your listening. It's good to be generous with yourself when it comes to spending time with your creative projects. And so to develop that kind of open-hearted, open-minded relationship with yourself, uh, I can see the whole world doing that. That's what gets me up excited in the morning and giving my thousandth interview or more than a thousand. I'm sure I've given more than yeah. a thousand. Yeah. And we know, I mean, the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our life. And of course, our happiness, it's so integral. And I think that's why so many people are late up late at night googling why relationships so hard <laughs> because it points to that longing that we all have to be truly connected and truly seen for who we are and all of the barriers that get in the way of that and I think something that I really love that you point out frequently in your work and even so far in this episode is that of the ego and how that really obstructs us from experiencing the depth of love that we all actually seek beneath the fear, beneath the blame, beneath the shame. Yeah. Yes. And I appreciate so much you emphasizing those um, real core points, because those are the things that everybody can learn to do. You don't have to be born with any of these skills. Katie and I learned them. You should see the families we grew up in, you know, like in my family, nobody ever told tell, the truth about anything. <laughs> tell, tell me about your family. I want to hear, I want to hear about your story and your journey, because you know what, something I do love is these stories of change and transformation and people knowing that it is, it is truly possible to change the way you show up in your, in relationships. And just because you have a blueprint that has been, 
conditioned into you partly from genetics but also because of your environment and how you grew up and the relation how you were shown love how you receive love when you're a child that is not a life sentence and you have ways to show up differently oh absolutely and uh, i well in fact i i'm completely a product of doing everything different than my childhood in a way because i grew up in such a way i grew up in the deep south in central florida and my family had lived down there uh, since they got on the losing side of the Civil War and had to move to Florida. And so they were a prominent family. My mother was the mayor of the town, and she was also the newspaper columnist that had a, had her picture in the paper just about every day. And so uh, I grew up in a very conservative family, and I had a medical problem when I was growing up. So I, I viewed my childhood, I think, through a different lens. I, when I was born, I had a problem, glandular problem, where my pituitary and thyroid glands weren't putting out anything. And so I put on weight very easily. By the end of my first year of life, when I was a baby, I had rolls of fat on me. And I became the only fat person in a family where everybody else was skinny. And so nobody could figure out why I was fat, you know, and I'm two years old, three years old, I was still fat. And I was still eating the same food that the skinny people ate. And so nobody could figure me out. So they took me around to different medical people. And um, even up into my teenage years, I was put on different diets and put on different pills. And um, I didn't ever solve the problem, though. And in fact, the reason for the problem scientifically didn't even get understood for quite a few years after I was grown up. So it wasn't like they could have found a magic solution for me if I'd looked hard enough. They just hadn't figured out how to treat that particular problem. So but I, what was the significance of that? Was the impact that you felt like you were the black sheep of the family or that you weren't lovable as you were? Or? or I was a problem. I think my mm -hmm. chief takeaway was I was a problem. <laughs> and, and so that's not a good feeling to be the problem. And so, um, and, and also as a fat kid, just not being able to do some things, you know, like learn how to ride a bike. I must've crashed that thing 150 times before I got up on it. And so by the time I was 24 years old, I weighed more than 300 pounds. Um, so what happened to me was I got the gift of an accident. I fell down on a slippery place on the ice when I was taking a walk one day. And at the time, I was in a real toxic relationship. I weighed more than 300 pounds. I smoked two or three packs of cigarettes a day. Uh, fortunately, I didn't drink. I've never been attracted to alcohol, but I was in a toxic job. Anyway, things were just, everything was wrong with my life. I was 23 or four years old. And so I had this slip and fall, and I landed on my back and I bounced my head off the, the ground. I didn't knock myself out though. I, for about two minutes though, I was out of my normal way of seeing myself. Instead of an out of the body experience, it was kind of an in the body experience because I saw down through the layers of all of the emotions that I'd never talked about or even acknowledged I had, things I was sad about, things I was scared about, things I was angry about, going back to day one in my life. And I had never even thought about that before. So it was like seeing it, taking an elevator ride down through these different levels of myself. But then the real magic was I saw that underneath everything was what I called pure consciousness, that there was just this pure background of consciousness that was just there as a gift of being human. And once I saw that, I realized, oh, that's our true home. It's not our personalities where our home is, or even our emotions or anything like that. Our home is in that place of celebrating the being of being a human being. And so once I saw that, I came back out. I was only in that state for about two minutes. But I started eating differently. I started eating only foods that fed that pure consciousness. And so for a year, I ate fruits and vegetables and, and you know, yogurt and things instead of 
hamburgers and milkshakes and French fries and all of those kinds of things. Uh, I just started eating healthy for the first time in my life, really. And so within a year, I'd lost more than 100 pounds. And, you know, it's like I rebirthed my life. I got a second chance at life. Uh, it's the best sense of starting over because in a way, by the time I lost 100 pounds, I'd also was moving out of the relationship and I was finding the field I wanted to be in. I discovered counseling psychology during that period of time and went back and got my master's and then got my doctorate at Stanford in counseling psychology. So it was starting over, finding a new life, making that new life uh, my home for the next 50 years. And so it was... Um, and it was birthed out of an experience of, in ways you describe it as being kind of transcendental, in a way, these two minutes of realizing yes. who the true self was underneath. And it's weird talking about this in the abstract. We've spoken about it a lot on the podcast before because we've had a lot of spiritual teachers and so forth. And we, we hear this repeatedly, that there is a true self that lies under the ego, the, the layers of who we think we are, our thoughts, our emotions, our superstructure, our personality. But yet there's nothing like having an experience. This is why I like hearing these stories because you realize, wow, people can change their whole life based on these moments. What? Yes, it's amazing to me that I think some people can learn without bottoming out. You know, maybe you can pick up a book and read something in it and change. I think I needed to sort of bottom out. You know, I sort of needed to take take it out to the edge. I couldn't just be 30 pounds overweight. I had to be 110 pounds overweight. You know, I couldn't smoke just 10 cigarettes a day. I had to smoke 40 or 50, you know. And so I think I was literally killing myself at age 24. And then I rebirthed everything. And so I've been uh, on vacation now for the last 50 some years because I discovered that, you know, if you do what you love to do and you do what's making a contribution to other people, that's to me the greatest happiness there could possibly be. And that's why I, uh, I write the books I write and uh, do the things I do is because, you know, I long ago stopped having to do it for money 30 some years ago. So now I just do it for my own amusement and to also have something new to show the world. So before I go, I got to show my new book, Your Big Leap Year, that's the sequel to The Big Leap that'll be coming out in uh, 2024. Nice. Let's, let's go to that. Before, I do actually want to go to The Big Leap in general because I'm thinking about the new year and it's often a time where people, whether they like New Year's resolutions or not, there's often a cultural pause and invitation to reflect on the goals we have moving forward, how we, where we've gotten to where we are and the changes we want to make. So, and I think your book about a zone of genius is really prevalent in this as well, because like we said, whether this be in relationships or work, when you're lit up and you're feeling vibrant you bring your full self you br and you're, you're happy, you're joyful, and it's a beautiful place to be. So I would like to go towards a talk about the different zones of genius that people have and the themes in A Big Leap as well. Yes. Well, The Big Leap came out about, uh, oh, I think about 14 years ago now. And it's been unique among all my books in that it sells better and better and better, better every year it's out. You know, most books sell well in the beginning and then kind of have a dive. But uh, by word of mouth, people keep telling each other about the big leap. And I think it's because one of those things is that you get to look at which zone you're in. Are you in your zone of incompetence where you're doing things you don't like to do? Or are you in your zone of competence doing things that you are okay at, but somebody else could do them just as well? Or are you in the zone of excellence where you're doing things that you're good at, that you make money at, that people give you at a girl and at a boy about? Or to me, the ultimate zone is what I call the genius zone, where you're doing things you love to do 
and make your biggest contribution to the world around you. And that's the zone in which people are happiest, in my view. And so about when, when I started thinking about the big leap, uh, people ask me, how long did it take you to write it? I say, well, it took me six months or a year to write it, but I'd been thinking about it for 30 years. I started noticing back in the 80s that a lot of the people I would work with, including myself, would hit these things that I kept calling the upper limit problem, where they'd get to a certain level of feeling good or success, and then they would do something to mess up and knock themselves back down. Success, knock back down. Success. And so I started working with that, and I figured out there were a number of fears that were underneath the upper limit problem that once people started to notice them and talk about them, they didn't have upper limits problems anymore. Things like a lot of people, even though they might be rich or famous, have a feeling inside that they're fundamentally flawed in some way. They're they're wounded in some way, and they don't tell the world about it, but that's the way they feel inside. So that would be the fun, fear of being fundamentally flawed. Another big one, especially for people in our field, is what I call the fear of outshining. A lot of people in our field haven't really stepped up into the light because they think it's better to have somebody else have the light, you know, that they don't deserve the light themselves. And a lot of folks like that grew up in families where there was a golden girl or a golden boy that got all the parental attention and you weren't that person. In my family, my brother was the golden boy. You know, he was the president of the class and the, you know, got all the goodies, the Eagle Scout and everything. And um, I was the one that, you know, the black sheep in a way, because I was the fat kid and I didn't like mechanical kinds of things. And my family, you know, they fix things. They're engineers and my mother's a writer. So anyway, I felt like a black sheep from the very beginning. But gradually, as I opened up more and more to my genius, I realized that I was learning things in my family that I didn't know I was learning at the time. Like my mother wrote a newspaper column for 30 years and she was always having to meet a deadline. And so the background, we call it the soundtrack of my childhood. My mother is in there banging away on her old Underwood typewriter. Bam, 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 bam. She's got a, a cigarette going. She's got a cup of coffee going. And she's cranking out her column. But I learned from that the importance of meeting a deadline, of doing something you said you were going to do by the time you said you were going to do it. And now, even after 50 books, I've never missed a deadline with any publisher wow. ever. And so, you know, things like that, that you don't realize that you're learning that are in the background. Uh, that's why uh, I think every year it's good to uh, send a letter of appreciation to your parents and your grandparents, the people that were around you growing up, thanking them for their contribution, even though you may not have uh, thanked them for it at the time. Or liked everything about them either. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I thought on this with the zone of genius because we often hear about the importance of managing our time, and it is important, but I think it's also very important to manage our energy, and it's something that's less spoken about, and yeah. I believe that if you are operating in your zone of genius, that will be an incredibly energizing place to be, which will probably boost you to do things that you have to do that are a bit tedious that you don't like doing or in one of the lower levels of competence or potentially even incompetence as you describe and um, do you agree with that idea i totally agree with it because well i'll give you an example i have two british short hair cats greta and ali and they're just the dearest companions and i notice over here ali's been asleep she likes to come in while i'm doing these things and take a nap in the background but uh, I mentioned them because they are great examples of how to ask for and get your needs met. And like uh, one of my little cats has a look. She <laughs> comes over and she goes like this if she's hungry. She looks at me in the eye and she goes and she licks her lips. And that's her indication that she's hungry. And I was just this morning tidying up their kitty litter box. And I was thinking about that because 
I was doing my best to bring my genius to bear on how to have a good time cleaning up a kitty litter box, you know, and, and I was having a good time doing it, but I was realizing there was a time in my life when I probably would have considered it drudgery, you know, or mm. something I had to do, but I've learned to do the things of my life in a way that is more generous and open-hearted and keeps me in a good mood. I was, I was stuck in a traffic jam. I live about 60 miles north of LA. And so a lot of times I, I, I sort of have to get myself psyched up to drive into LA because I'm pretty much sure I'm going to get involved in a lot more traffic than where I live. And so I was stuck in traffic. I was literally sitting and a friend of mine called me up, another transformational teacher, Mary Morrissey, and just, how are you doing and what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm sitting here in the Zen monastery of an LA traffic jam. And she still kids me about it to this day because, you know, and I was actually, I was doing my best to appreciate not getting where I was wanting to get to, you know, just feeling where I was. It's not easy, you know, and no. uh, yeah, it, it requires a certain amount of innocence and courageousness and recommitment over and over again. Uh, but to me, life is as its best when we're expanding our genius in every moment, not just the moments where they're prize moments where you're listening to a TEDx talk or listening to a TED talk or listening to a podcast or something. But when you're doing your kitty litter, you know, that's the time when you're really put to the acid test of your enlightenment. But you wouldn't say that's a zone of genius, but that's more working on our ability yeah. to be present and to find uh, uh, acceptance for the moment in front of you. It, yeah, in a way, your zone of genius is not just a thing you're doing, but it's the way you're going about the thing you're doing. You know, is it, are you open to learning from the situation? Like there's a famous story. I heard it from uh, the late Stephen Covey. I don't know where he got it from, but back in the Middle Ages, there was a traveler on horseback and he came to a place where he saw a bunch of people carrying big stones up a hill and they were getting these stones from near the riverbank and carrying them out of sight up a hill. And he noticed that some of the people had a smile on their face while they were doing it. And some just were groaning with it and everything. And he asked one of the groaners, what is it that you all are doing? And he said, can't you see we're carrying rocks up a hill. And then he asked one of the people with a smile on their face, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we're building a cathedral. You know, because the reason he had a smile on his face was because he had a higher purpose for just carrying than just carrying a rock. But the other person, maybe he'd just been hired for the day to carry rocks, you know, and he was struggling with that. But to me, it's up to us in life to open up and learn the finest things we can do about how to go through life as a generous, aware, open-hearted, open-minded person, and let that be the thing we model in our life rather than necessarily the thing we're doing. I think we can learn a lot from that. Like I saw, um, uh, there's a, uh, a film of Picasso painting a painting, but you're seeing it from the other side. Uh, so you can see where he started. And he started with, let's say, a fish. And then he completely painted over the fish. And it became about a bird. And then he painted over the bird. And it became about something else. So over the course of having the painting come to life, you didn't realize that there were all these other things in it that were, you know, if he was looking at it as a mistake, they were false starts. But it was to him something that he had to do to get to the place of genius. And so that's the way I think we ought to view our activities in life. Yeah, I think it's when we can focus on the process as opposed to the outcome as well, because I think that's a pitfall a lot where with over-focusing on goals or fixating on a future destination that you forget to enjoy the journey there and you're in this forward you bring an anxious, or at least I do certainly regularly, which is bring that anxious energy 
to it of going, oh, but I need to get to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And before you know it, your life has just sped you by. I'm going to move into the final fast few questions now, Gay. And the first thing I wanted to ask is, what is one piece of advice you would give to people who are in a relationship now that are struggling but want to find a path towards deeper connection and love? Yes. Three things that I mentioned already. Practice speaking authentically. Practice talking about, I'm scared, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm confused. You know, learn to speak from your heart. So that's one thing, rather than speaking in you statements, like, why are you doing this again? The second thing is get good at taking joyful responsibility. Responsibility is not a burden or a blame. It's a, oh, that's why I did that. It, you know, it's discovery about why you did something. The third thing is really make a commitment, a living commitment to your creative path. Because if you can get busy even 10 or 20 minutes a day, I've seen that rebirth people. So authenticity, taking healthy responsibility, and creativity. And creativity. Magic. Love that. Love that. Second, is there something that you personally used to believe that you no longer believe? Everything. <laughs> you know, I used to believe what I was taught growing up. Big boys don't cry. Keep everything hidden. Keep a poker face. Don't let anybody else know what you're feeling. I mean, that was the point of view back there. You know, and John Wayne was the big cowboy hero. Yeah, and strong, silent type. That'll kill relationships. You know, if you don't know how to speak from your heart, if you're more committed to hiding than you are to revealing, that's lethal in a relationship. It will kill a relationship. And so um, I used to believe in the, you know, hiding everything inside. I now believe in going to the opposite extreme. We tell our students here, if there's anything in your life that you wouldn't be willing to talk about over the loudspeaker at Wembley Stadium or the Super Bowl or wherever you are to the crowd of 80,000 people, that's got a grip on you. You know, get good at being authentic in major, major ways. Mm. I'm hearing authenticity is a big pattern for you. It's funny, it's funny because I do public speaking coaching and I often say that I want people to ins inspire with authenticity. Mm, and it's something that we often refrain from because of fears, largely. But actually, if we can remove those layers and step into our authenticity, I think it's the key to greater empowerment, greater happiness, and and more effectiveness, I would argue, as well. Yeah, and you know, human beings have been trying to learn that for a long time. We're doing better than we used to. Only 400 years ago, they were burning people at the stake simply for saying something like, oh, you know, the universe doesn't revolve around the earth. We revolve around the yeah, sun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. burn that person at the stake, you know? Yeah, And true. so things have gotten a lot better. It's a lot, most of us don't get stoned and burned anymore for speaking honestly. Some Thank people goodness. still do. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. Finishing up here, what is a key practice that you would recommend people to do to deepen their connection to themselves so that they can show up better in relationship with others? One good thing would be to develop a strong inner practice of some kind, like daily meditation or yoga or something that you can dedicate yourself to that centers you on a daily basis so that you're not bobbing around with the fluctuations of energy in life so that you get a, a, a bit of steadiness. I learned how to meditate more than 50 years ago now, and I do it every day, have done it every day for 50 years, because it gives me an opportunity to go inside for 15 or 20 minutes twice a day, and everything gets still and centered. 
And that's a good place to come from in life rather than bouncing all over the place. So one thing would be to develop a a real good, strong uh, practice of inner work, because every moment that you can spend opening up more and more of a conversation with your own inner depths, it allows you to see and appreciate the inner depths of other people more. I love that beautiful point to finish on. And the theme that I'm hearing as well, which is going to carry us through the new year is the importance of building in routines. And it's not what we do with intensity that counts. It's what we do with consistency. Yeah. Well, anything in life that's valuable, it's something that requires practice and repetition and perfection and refinement. There's an old joke about a person stops a cop in New York and says, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the cop says, practice, practice, practice. You know, and the same thing in relationships, you know, it's a practice. It is a practice. Gay, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Great talking to you, uh, Shannon, and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much.